Wish you weren't hearing an ad right now? Want to get the next episode even sooner? Well, after the show, head to watchnebula.com slash radio. You'll get access to our original podcasts ad-free, plus exclusive originals and experimental shows from your favorite educational-ish creators. And best of all, you're helping us to make even more amazing content. Just go to watchnebula.com slash radio. It really helps us out. When you take on an engagement as a lawyer, the worst thing that you think that can happen is you'll lose the case. You don't think you're going to get disbarred as a result, and you certainly don't think that you're going to jail, especially when you're suing a private company. But some people have accused Chevron, the oil company, of doing just that, putting lawyer Steven Donzinger in jail for his lawsuit against them. But is that what really happened? And is that what happened in this particular case? Well, once upon a time, lawyer Steven Donzinger famously won a case against Chevron for polluting the Amazonian rainforest in the Ecuador. He won billions of dollars. But Donzinger has been disbarred, is under house arrest, and the plaintiffs in that case have never been paid. And now the eyes of the legal world are on New York City where Donzinger's contempt of court trial has captured the attention of celebrities, legal commentators, and social media. So what is the Steven Donzinger case all about? Hey, Legal Eagles, it's time to think like a lawyer under house arrest, because that's where Steven Donziger has been while he awaits the outcome of a contempt of court trial that stems from a case he started way back in 1993. So today we're going to analyze the Chevron versus Steve Donziger ordeal. How did we get here? Who bribed whom? And who is the real threat to the rule of law? Former attorney Steve Donziger or Chevron Oil? But to understand what's happening right now in New York, we have to understand what some people call the Amazon Chernobyl. The Donziger saga involves two different legal disputes. First, there was the case where indigenous people from Ecuador sued Chevron for destroying parts of the Amazon rainforest. Steve Donziger was their lawyer. And although the plaintiffs won, they have been unable to collect the $9.5 billion for legal issues that we'll talk about in a second. The second dispute is Chevron's civil case against Donziger himself, where the company has accused him of fraud and bribery in violation of American and racketeering laws. Donzinger lost this lawsuit and then failed to comply with multiple court orders. That led to contempt of court charges, and this is why Donzinger is currently on trial. But the story of this goes way back to the 1960s, when Texaco teamed up with a military junta that had seized power in Ecuador to drill for oil in the Amazon. These tribes were hunter-gatherers who didn't even have a word for oil, but it's alleged that Texaco's activities produced 16 billion gallons of toxic runoff, a lot of which wound up in unregulated shallow pits, but most of the toxic sludge was simply dumped into rivers. To facilitate the drilling, Texco created a company town called Lago Adria, which became a typical oil boom town with all the components needed for drilling infrastructure, concrete walls, holding tanks, massive drills, and miles of pipelines. But in 1992, Texaco ended its Ecuador operation, leaving behind this infrastructure, plus hundreds of open oil pits, thousands of waste pits near drinking and fishing water, and untold amounts of contaminated wastewater. How bad was the situation in Ecuador? Well, even now, more than 50 years after Texaco started drilling, the people who live there can't get clean water from the river, so they collect rainwater or walk six miles to fill plastic water jugs from a water truck provided by a Spanish oil company. This is why the situation for local people has been called the Amazon Chernobyl. And it's also why in 1993, Donziger and a small team of lawyers filed a lawsuit on behalf of the people of Lago Agria. They filed the case in New York, where Texaco was headquartered. The company, whose assets were eventually acquired by Chevron, sought to remove the litigation to Ecuador, meaning take the litigation from the United States and put it in Ecuador. Strategically, the company assumed that they would have a better shot at winning the case in Ecuador, where they still had political clout. This complicated jurisdictional battle took 10 years to resolve. Chevron won, and the case was removed to Ecuador. 
And Chevron has always maintained that Ecuadorian contamination is the responsibility of Texaco, even though Chevron inherited the company's assets around the world and runs Texaco as a subsidiary. And it also puts a fair amount of blame on Petro Ecuador, the state-run petrochemical company. Not surprisingly though, even after the case was removed to Ecuador, the case still took years to complete as the parties to the suit and independent groups completed over 60,000 lab tests on soil and water. The results, quote, overwhelmingly showed contamination traceable to Texaco. But the testing process was contentious and both sides crossed ethical lines. So we'll start with Chevron's dirty dealing. It's alleged that Chevron concocted a scheme where it sent soil and water samples to a friendly lab for favorable results. We know about this because Diego Borja, a Chevron contractor who admitted that Chevron worked with his uncle and wife to create four front companies which posed as independent labs. There are recordings of Borja discussing his ability to produce enough evidence to swing the case to the plaintiffs if need be. He said that Chevron understood exactly what he was implying and that the company promised that he would be taken care of. Crime does pay, Borja laughed in one of these calls. Chevron eventually helped Borja and his family move to the US. Chevron paid Borja's legal fees, helping him to become a naturalized American citizen. The company also paid his rent and gave his family a monthly stipend. Chevron paid Borja over $2 million, and those are just the payments the plaintiffs were able to trace. This raises a question. Is it legal to pay a non-expert witness for testimony? And the answer to that is actually no. Fact witnesses generally may be reimbursed for expenses incurred and time lost in connection with litigation, but they can't be paid to testify or not testify for the substance of their testimony. Chevron has declined to comment on Borja's allegations beyond stating that they are protecting him from retaliation. An American judge denied further discovery into the nature of the Borja-Chevron arrangement. But let's talk about the allegations against Donzinger himself. Chevron has accused Donzinger of dirty dealing, and in a diary entry later obtained by a US court, Donzinger admits that he had a secret contact with the court-appointed expert who was supposed to be independent. Donzinger described the situation as a, quote, bargain with the devil. Quote, we can't win with the devil because they, Chevron, can always pay more. There's also evidence that Donzinger paid for the expert report and may have written parts of it. Although American lawyers don't write expert reports, in our legal system, lawyers do pay experts and exert some influence over how the reports are written. In the Ecuadorian case, the expert report was written by a Colorado company called Stratus. Many experts say that the expert report's scientific analysis was sound. However, according to a report in Rolling Stone, Chevron played hardball with Stratus, pressuring insurance companies to cancel its coverage with Stratus and leaning on its clients to cancel contracts with the company. Eventually, Stratus faced bankruptcy and in a move that may or may not be related, its executives signed an agreement with Chevron explicitly disavowing its work in Ecuador as fraudulent. But to get back to the verdict in the Ecuadorian case, this issue with the Stratus report may be nothing more than a distraction from the bigger picture. The Ecuadorian court granted Chevron's motion to exclude the expert report from consideration. In the end, the Ecuadorian court found for the plaintiffs without relying on the controversial report. And this nine-year legal saga generated a 220,000-page record with over 100 expert reports, testimony from dozens of witnesses, scientific data from 54 court-supervised inspections, and independent health evaluations. And in the end, the court found that Texaco Chevron had dumped billions of gallons of water containing toxic chemicals in waterways and on the jungle floor, used unlined waste pits that contaminated the soil and groundwater, never cleaned up the frequent oil spills, maintained a policy of destroying documents related to oil spills, and burning natural gas that contaminated the air. On February 14th, 2011, a judge entered a judgment against Chevron for over $19 billion, which was later reduced to $9.5 billion. It was upheld by Ecuadorian appeals courts in 2012 and 2013. And this was pretty much the last good thing that happened for the Lago Agria plaintiffs. So that takes us to the American case of Chevron versus Donzinger. 
After Chevron lost the Ecuadorian case, it dropped a bombshell that would change the trajectory of this whole entire saga. They alleged that Donzinger bribed an Ecuadorian judge. After the trial, former Ecuadorian judge Alberto Guerra came forward with a story that the legal team for the Ecuadorians offered him a bribe to ghostwrite the judgment against Chevron. Guerra said that he asked Chevron for a bribe first, and they turned him down, so he then went to Donzinger. He says he sought bribes on behalf of Judge Nicolas Zambrano, the judge who actually issued the final judgment in the case. And according to Guerra, he and Zambrano shared $500,000 in kickbacks paid by Donzinger. This is the testimony that Chevron used to sue Donzinger under U.S. anti-racketeering laws, which takes us to a rare case of RICO. The Organized Crime Control Act of 1970, also known as the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, or RICO, was originally enacted to help the government stop organized crime. RICO generally has two different flavors, civil and criminal. The government can prosecute a person who operates or requires an enterprise through a pattern of racketeering activity. RICO's criminal penalties include imprisonment up to 20 years and even life, depending on the activity. And when Congress passed RICO, their expectation was that the vast majority of RICO claims would be brought by federal prosecutors. However, the law also had a civil component that allows private persons and entities to file RICO lawsuits. RICO's civil remedies provision, section 1964C, states, quote, any person injured in his business or property by reason of a violation of section 1962 of his chapter may sue, therefore, in any appropriate U.S. district court and shall recover threefold the damages he sustains and the cost of the suit, including reasonable attorney's fees. Chevron, as a private party and person, used a section to argue that the Ecuadorian verdict was obtained fraudulently. And while the Ecuadorian verdict was upheld on appeal in Ecuador, Chevron doesn't need an Ecuadorian court. All it needed to do was cast doubt on the original legal proceedings, which would of course help them to avoid paying a judgment in the United States. So let's talk about Guerra's testimony here. In 2011, Chevron sued Donzinger and the plaintiffs, alleging fraud and using Guerra's testimony to prove its case. During the litigation, Guerra admitted that when he was a judge, he accepted bribes and fixed cases. He also admitted that Chevron relocated him and his family to the U.S. and compensated him in much the same way that it paid Borja. However, Chevron says Guerra legitimately feared for his life and facilitated a move to the United States to protect him. Erwin Chimarensky, basically the guy that everyone learns constitutional law from in law school, and also the dean of the University of California Irvine School of Law, signed a declaration criticizing the Guerra evidence. Quote, if a party or its counsel were permitted to pay a testifying witness for physical evidence beyond the reasonable value of that evidence, and to pay the witness a salary in exchange for an agreement to testify, there would be little left to the rule against compensating fact witnesses. That is precisely what has occurred here. Notwithstanding, U.S. District Judge Lewin Kaplan found clear and convincing evidence that Donzinger and the plaintiffs committed fraud, bribery, and extortion to obtain judgment over Chevron. Quote, Guerra on many occasions has acted deceitfully and broken the law, but that does not necessarily mean that it should be disregarded wholesale. Judge Kaplan also issued an injunction barring the Ecuadorian plaintiffs from enforcing the judgment in American courts. Now, Chevron leveraged the Kaplan decision and the Guerra evidence internationally, convincing an arbitration tribunal in The Hague that the Ecuadorian judgment violated Chevron rights. Interestingly, at the arbitration in front of The Hague, Guerra recanted his testimony again and claimed that he lied about the whole kickback scheme. He claims he approached Chevron with an offer to manufacture testimony and to increase his bargaining position, he told Chevron plaintiffs offered him a bribe. 
and Garrett testified that Chevron promised to pay him for making up a story. During his testimony, Garrett admitted that he has no evidence of the alleged bribes, and forensic experts from both parties agree that the draft judgment was never found on either Steve Donzinger's or Garrett's computer. But similar to the American courts, the Hague Tribunal ruled that no court should enforce the judgment because parts of it were corruptly ghostwritten in return for the promise of a bribe. Now, after Judge Kaplan's ruling, Donzinger appealed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, which is the Court of Appeals that's one step below the Supreme Court. Donzinger argued that Judge Kaplan's expansive reading of the RICO statute was not supported by case law. The Second Circuit disagreed, finding that Section 1964 was meant to allow private citizens to be prosecutors or attorneys general in this private right of action. Quote, Section 1964, subsection A, gives federal courts jurisdiction to hear RICO claims and sets out general remedies, including injunctive relief. Subsection B makes it clear that the court, on the application of the attorney general, has authority to grant temporary injunctive relief even before its final adjudication, and subsection C provides a private right of action for any person injured in his business or property by reasons in violation of section 1962. The Second Circuit held that there is no legal principle that stops a U.S. court from granting a company relief from a foreign verdict. And Judge Kaplan's orders certainly aided Chevron's attempts to avoid judgment. And not only did this injunction bar any U.S. court from enforcing the judgment, it also set up a constructive trust that would hold any proceeds the plaintiffs obtained anywhere else in the world. Now, some have criticized this strategy and the Second Circuit's decision as uh, giving private actors like corporations another way to go after people who criticize their actions. In the context of free speech, this is known as generally a slap suit. A slap is an acronym for a strategic lawsuit against public participation. And it's interesting because in this particular case, what Chevron argued successfully was that getting a lawsuit or at least extorting allegedly extorting a lawsuit in a foreign jurisdiction was a violation of a RICO statute. Even if a verdict is obtained in bad faith, it's extremely unusual to claim that a lawsuit or the legal system in general is an arm of a RICO enterprise. But that more or less takes us to the contempt trial, which is why Stephen Donzinger is under house arrest to this day. Based on the allegations of impropriety against Donzinger, or I guess at this point, the findings of impropriety against Donzinger, Chevron sued Donzinger personally, and the court ordered Donzinger to pay Chevron money that he had earned by selling shares in the Ecuadorian judgment. Eventually, Kaplan ordered Donzinger to pay Chevron $813,000. This is the order that has led to Donzinger's current trial. Chevron filed motions with the court alleging that Donzinger was hiding assets in order to avoid paying up, and the court ordered Donzinger to produce his cell phone, computer, and other documents so that the court could review evidence about his assets. Donzinger refused to comply with the court's discovery orders. He argued that the materials would reveal decades of communications he had had with his clients, which arguably would be protected by attorney-client privilege. And while that might be true, even if this information would reveal some protected communications, courts deal with this kind of sensitive information all the time. Judges often review the material in camera, which means only the court is looking at these documents, and they often allow redactions, and they can issue orders preventing the other side from seeing protected information. But by refusing to comply with the court's orders, Donzinger found himself in contempt of court. And here's where things went sideways again. The judge, Judge Kaplan, appointed a special prosecutor, Rita Galvin, a former DOJ attorney now in private practice to handle the contempt case. Galvin's role was to prosecute on behalf of the court. The Manhattan AUSA twice told the judge that it was overtaxed and didn't have any lawyers to spare in this contempt trial. Kaplan went ahead with the prosecution using Galvin. And something else that's unusual, the maximum penalty for misdemeanor contempt of federal court in this situation is about six months in prison. However, the judge ordered Donzinger to be held 
under home confinement because he's allegedly a flight risk due to his interests in Ecuador. Donziger has been under house arrest for more than 600 days, more than four times the length of time that he could be confined in prison if he was convicted of the offense. Donziger's supporters, which include Nobel laureates and international law organizations, said that this is unprecedented for a federal misdemeanor case. They and Donziger also argue that given the punitive nature of this prosecution, he's entitled to a trial by jury. The court has disagreed, so Donziger's fate will be decided by a judge. Thus, Donziger appears to be in a catch-22 situation. He's been confined for more than the time that he could be sent to jail and is on the hook for $800,000. Meanwhile, the facts that have been established in the American federal court say that he bribed a judge, and the Supreme Court has denied Donziger's petition for certiorari. So this means that the RICO case is over. So the criminal contempt case is an offshoot of Chevron civil action against Donziger. In that case, Judge Kaplan ruled that Donziger obtained the $8.6 billion judgment in Ecuador against Chevron through fraudulent and corrupt means. Judge Kaplan's judgment enjoined Donziger from enforcing the Ecuadorian judgment in the United States or attempting to profit from it. Donziger appealed his case to the Supreme Court, which did not grant certiorari, which means the Supreme Court did not take up the case. And that meant that Chevron won the case and could move on to enforce the judgment of the court. And when a plaintiff wins a judgment, the next steps usually include determining what assets the defendant has to satisfy the monetary judgment. Against that backdrop, Judge Kaplan ordered Donziger to transfer to Chevron all property that he had or might later obtain that could be traced to the Ecuadorian judgment. And in 2018, Chevron initiated post-judgment discovery to identify assets available to enforce its judgment against Donziger. So discovery can come at the beginning of a case before the case is over, and it can also come after the case when, you know, you have to figure out how you're going to get the money from the person that you just won the money against. And the court also ordered discovery to assess Donziger's compliance with the judgment's injunctive provisions. Donziger resisted this discovery, refusing to provide the requested information and refusing to transfer property. He sent a letter to Judge Kaplan stating that he would prefer to be found in contempt of court and then challenge the contempt findings in court proceedings. The judge said Donziger should turn over his electronic devices to a forensic expert so they could be imaged and examined for responsive documents. Donziger refused to do this, and so he was found in contempt of court. And in the latest proceedings, Judge Preska clearly expects Donziger to attack her impartiality, as he's done in the past, and as he's done with Judge Kaplan. And in late July, Judge Preska finally issued her ruling. She found Donziger guilty of six counts of contempt of court. The 245-page ruling is bound to be controversial. Judge Preska agreed with Donziger that he may be the only lawyer ever prosecuted by a private special counsel in the Southern District of New York. But the judge said that the uniqueness of the circumstances didn't render the prosecution inappropriate or untoward. Judge Preska's ruling said that Donziger refused to comply with the court orders, and that was an attack on the rule of law. Quote, at stake here is the fundamental principle that a party to a legal action must abide by court orders or risk criminal sanctions no matter how fervently he believes in the righteousness of his cause or how much he detests his adversary. The judge did not consider the wider context of the Chevron saga, except to point out that she believed Donziger was sincere in his beliefs that he's being being persecuted and so are his clients. As the judge pointed out, quote, this case, however, is wholly unconcerned with the debate regarding any responsibility Chevron might bear for that pollution. The only question before this court was the very specific question of whether Donziger had committed criminal contempt in violation of 18 U.S.C. 401. To secure a criminal conviction for contempt of a court order, prosecutors have to prove three elements. One, that the order was issued. Two, that the defendant's disobedience or disregard of that order. And three, the defendant's knowledge or willfulness in disobeying 
denying that order. The judge ruled that the prosecution had proved beyond a reasonable doubt that Donzinger received notice of the court orders, that he ignored the court orders, and that he did so willfully. Donzinger, on the other hand, argued that his acts were ethically grounded in principled objections that lawyers are permitted to make when they object to an abuse of power. He cited the case of In Ray McConnell, which reversed a contempt conviction of a lawyer who insisted on pursuing a forbidden line of questioning at trial. However, Judge Preska said that McConnell didn't apply here since the contempt charges in that case were under a different section of 401, which prohibits in-court acts that, quote, obstruct the administration of justice, rather than the third section of section 401, which is the statute that Donzinger was charged under. Section 401.3 prohibits disobedience of lawful court orders. The judge also took issue with Donzinger's assumption that the McConnell case allows lawyers to defy court orders so long as their decisions were, quote, ethically grounded. Quote, criminal contempt jurisprudence has no safe harbor for conscientious objectors. Indeed, the law is clear that a party may not challenge a court's order by violating it. Instead, he must move to vacate or modify the order or seek relief from the Court of Appeals. Since this was not a trial about Chevron's responsibility for pollution, all Judge Preska could do was consider the facts of the contempt charges. Here she found that, quote, a lawyer of all people should know that in the face of a perceived injustice, one may not take the law into his own hands. By repeatedly and willfully defying Judge Kaplan's orders, that is precisely what Mr. Donzinger did, it's time to pay the piper, end quote. The charges here carry a maximum penalty of six months in prison, and Donzinger has already served over 700 days on house arrest. So does that mean that he'll be sentenced to time served? That's definitely a possibility. He'll be sentenced shortly, but we already know that Donzinger will appeal this ruling. He tweeted a statement deriding Judge Preska as a member of the, quote, Chevron-funded Federalist Society, and called his conviction a dark day for the, quote, rule of law for democracy and our planet. Though, of course, Donzinger's chances of winning this appeal are incredibly slim, though we probably haven't heard the last of Steve Donzinger. Oh, and one last thing. I know right now you're probably fumbling with your phone trying to find the next podcast to listen to, but you can't because this is an ad. But it doesn't have to be that way. Instead, you can go to watchnebula.com slash radio. You can get access to all of our original podcasts ad-free, plus exclusive originals and experimental shows from your favorite educational-ish creators. And best of all, you're helping to support us make even more amazing content. So before you go, check out watchnebula.com slash radio to support this channel and this podcast directly.